Anyone here a uh, fan of jigsaw puzzles? Um, there's a few hands going up. I can say that I am not. Um, I, I find that they take way more uh, time and patience and energy that I am typically willing uh, to invest. But there are some rare occasions. It's typically if we're you know, away on vacation somewhere and it's raining outside all day and we've exhausted all the other options and I'll go into the closet and pull out one of those jigsaw puzzles and, and give it a go. And so, uh, so let me share for you my, my jigsaw puzzle strategy, okay? Um, when I go through a jigsaw puzzle, I start out uh, with the borders, right? The, the, the smooth-edged pieces of those puzzles are the easiest ones to locate amidst of the, the thousands of disparate pieces. And so, and so step one for me is, is getting that outside frame in place. And then once that's done, if I haven't given up yet, I then go and, and I'll sort out the different colored pieces, you know, into individual piles. And then, and then I work and go through each pile and try to figure out where do they fit inside of the frame. And that's step number two. If you get past that, the next step after that, that's the one that's most challenging for me because what's left over is this pile of pieces that just don't seem to fit anywhere. You know, uh, you've gotten all the easy work done, but all of these pieces that are left over, and there's typically a lot of them, I just don't know where they go. There's been some times where I've started to wonder, was someone at the puzzle factory trying to play some kind of cruel joke? Because I'm pretty sure they put pieces of two different puzzles into this box to just mess me up. Um, but uh, the only way forward is to just take out each piece and, and work it and see where it fits and keep at it until you find it. And it's a long process, it's a, it's a tedious process, but if you keep going and you don't give up eventually, um, it all comes together. All of the pieces somehow end up fitting. And I want to kind of use that illustration as a way of analogy for making sense of, of the subject of suffering. Um, working through the jigsaw puzzles and particularly the pieces that, that don't seem to fit. Uh, we're in the third week of a series that's called What About That? And we're working each week through different barriers to belief, things that people look at and say, faith is a challenge and here's why, these, these questions. And, and so this morning, the, the question is, what about suffering? There's just so much of it. And the challenge is, how do we reconcile the the reality of suffering with the God of the Bible who reveals himself as good God Almighty, right? So that he's, he's all-powerful and he's also all-good. And, and for many, that just seems like a non-starter. There's no way. That's an impossible issue to resolve. The, the very reality of the suffering around us in our world, that is evidence enough to conclude that God cannot be real, he does not exist, or others come to the conclusion that, yeah, God, maybe he is real, but either he's not powerful enough to stop the suffering, or he's just simply not as good as his reputation um, has made him out to be. 
There's no way that God is good all the time. And uh, those are common responses. They're, I would say, understandable responses. But I would also add to that, they're not the only responses. For centuries, uh, Christ followers have lived and existed with this tension, this tension between the goodness of Almighty God and the reality of unjust suffering. And, And Christian faith holds that they are not mutually exclusive realities. There is a way uh, to hold the two together in a way that's honest and cohesive and and faithful and one that makes sense. And so um, we're going to dive into that a little bit this morning. If you have a Bible, uh, I want to invite you to open up to the book of Psalms and uh, tucked away in this uh, book of collection of Hebrew prayers, we find uh, a very uncensored prayer. Uh, from a man of faith, uh, someone who is struggling with the suffering that he sees around him. And in Psalm chapter 10, it charts out how he wrestles through it. And so uh, listen in, we're going to read in Psalm chapter 10, and starting in verse 1, it says this, Why, O Lord, do you stand far away? Why do you hide yourself in times of trouble? In arrogance, the wicked hotly pursue the poor. Let them be caught in the schemes they have devised, for the wicked boasts of his desires, of the desires of his soul, and the one greedy for gain curses and renounces the Lord. In the pride of his face, the wicked does not seek him, and his thoughts are, there is no God. His ways prosper at all times. Your judgments are on high, out of his sight, as for all of his foes, he puffs at them. He says in his heart, I shall not be moved throughout all generations. I shall not meet adversity. His mouth is filled with cursing and deceit and oppression. Under his tongue are mischief and iniquity. He sits in ambush in the villages. In hiding places, he murders the innocent. His eyes stealthily watch for the helpless. He lurks in ambush like a lion in the thicket. He lurks that he may seize the poor when he draws him into his net. The helpless are crushed, sink down and fall by his might. And he says in his heart, God has forgotten. He has hidden his face. He will never see it. So we'll stop right there and unpack what we've just uh, read. This prayer, you've probably noticed, this isn't addressing the subject of suffering Uh, on some kind of abstract, ideological level, right? This is is the prayer of someone who's who's seen suffering, who's who's watched exploitation take place with his own eyes, who's experienced injustice in real time. And, And as you can probably tell, he's struggling with it, just like you struggle it, and I struggle it, and practically every person who has a pulse struggles with the reality of suffering. And and so um, just to be clear what we're going to do here this morning, the goal is not to solve the problem of suffering. We're not going to be able to do that this morning. What I do hope we'll do is, is find a place to funnel the struggle that we have with suffering. And this prayer shows us how to do that by funneling it in prayer directly to God. And you've seen it's not what you can call a, it's not a pretty prayer, right? It's, it's uncensored, 
It's raw and it's honest. And that's kind of the point, right? When suffering comes crashing into your life, this is what prayer sounds like. And it's almost like he's pulled up this garbage truck that's filled with all of the suffering, all of the realities that don't make any sense at all, and he dumps it out. He unloads the entire thing out on God in prayer. God, why are you so far away? There's, there's trouble going down here, and it sure seems like you're nowhere to be found. It's like you're off duty, God. We're, we're down here suffering, and you're off duty. His struggle that he's praying about had to do with, with wicked men, men who were prospering on the backs of everybody else, and they were, they were stealing at will, they had zero respect for God. They're crushing anyone who stood in their way. And life was going great for them. And he can't make sense of that. He's wrestling through that with God. God, why? What's going on? This is not right. And you know, we could all pray our own prayers. We all have our own personal experiences with injustice and suffering and in our world, in our realities, there is so much that's so wrong. This shows us where to funnel that frustration in an unexpected place, maybe, to God in honest, uncensored prayer. So the Christian response uh, when it comes to suffering is not to stuff it and deny it or pretend it away, right? But it's also not to jump to conclusions either. It starts out with just wrestling with it, with the one who's secure enough to handle whatever it is that we have to say. Let's continue to read and pick up the passage in verse 12. It says this, Arise, O Lord, O God, lift up your hand, forget not the afflicted. Why does the wicked renounce God and say in his heart, you will not call to account, but you do see? For you note mischief and vexation that you may take it into your hands. To you the helpless commits himself. You have been a helper of the fatherless. Break the arm of the wicked and the evildoer. Call his wickedness to account till you find none. So there's like this major movement, the step forward that's taken place between the, the last verse, verse 11, and the first verse we just read, verse 12. Something, something's changed. Uh, the struggle's still there, it hasn't gone away, but the focus has shifted away from what's going on down here to, to who God is. And for Christ followers, um, this struggle that we all know of, of struggling with suffering, it's, it's a little bit like walking on a tightrope. Uh, one end of that rope is tied to the way things are. The other, the other end of it is tied to who God is. And that end, it's far off in the distance. It's out of sight. We can't see it. But it's in between those two ends that there's this walk of faith that we live out our lives on. And the question is, are you willing to step onto that tightrope and start walking? Or... Is the way things are the only thing that matters? 
Stepping on that tightrope, it starts with recalling who God is. And that's where this prayer goes. He, he digs deep and he declares um, that despite the dissonance of the way that things are and what he sees, he says, I remember, I declare, I cling to the truth that you are the God you say you are. You're powerful. You know what's going on. You haven't forgotten us and you care. You're a God of justice. All of these realities that they don't appear that way, but he declares it. You know, for, for some, that just seems like too steep a step to take. Really, the way things are, that's the only thing that matters. How can anyone possibly talk about good God Almighty in light of the way things are? There's an answer to that. Here's how. Humility. That's that's what makes it happen. That's what it takes to take that step onto the tightrope, a humble recollection, a recognition of how little we know, how finite we are, and how limited our sight really is. That, that we do not see the beginning from the end, and what we do see, we see a cloudy. We don't see as clearly as, as we'd like to. So I, I've gone to the U.S. Um, the U.S. Open tournament uh, one time with with two of my good friends from college, and and this one time we went, we were like literally two rows back from the top of Arthur Ashe Stadium, which is a gigantic stadium. I mean, it gives like new definition to nosebleed seats is where we were sitting. We may have been a half a mile away from the court side. You can barely make out the movement of the ball, but we're there. It's a fun time. We're enjoying it. But there's one point in the match came where there was, the close, there was a close serve, right? And the line judge called the ball out of bounds. And my friend shakes his head in disbelief, and he mutters, no way that ball went wide. And... My other friend and myself, we turned to him and said, dude, do you realize where we're sitting? We are in a different zip code from where the action is taking place. And given where we're seated, I'm not quite sure we're in the right position to question that call. And, you know, that, that reality, the Bible says, that applies to life. It, it's a theme throughout Scripture. In 1 Corinthians 13, it says, now we see but a poor reflection as in a mirror, then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. So doesn't life kind of have a way of reminding us that we don't have things as figured out as we sometimes think we do? Um, that's my reality, at least. There are so many times when I have been in situations where I am absolutely sure. I've got this completely figured out. There are absolutely no loopholes in how I'm seeing this situation. And then someone comes along, it's usually a family member, might be my wife, I'm not going to say, um, but she will add some kind of data point that I hadn't, I hadn't considered. I, I didn't factor that in. And with that one little piece of information, the whole situation looks a lot different. And I usually have to apologize for my brash 
overconfidence. Oh, you're right. Now I get it. Yeah, I have a feeling that in heaven we're going to be hearing that phrase a lot. Oh, you're right. Now, now I get it. So that's, that's kind of what gets you on the tightrope. It's start moving from the way things are to, to who God is with this just humble realization that we, we don't have it all figured out. Tim Keller, in a book, um, The Reason for God, he points out this, this flaw of the reasoning uh, that we've been talking about. The reasoning that if a good and powerful God exists, he would not allow pointless evil. But because there is so much unjustifiable, pointless evil, then the traditional good and powerful God does not exist. And he says, he says this, tucked away in that assertion, is a hidden premise that if evil appears pointless to me, then it must be pointless. But he says, just because you can't see or imagine a good reason why God might might allow something to happen, that doesn't mean there can't be one. Lurking within hard-nosed skepticism is an enormous faith in one's own cognitive faculties. If my mind can't plumb the depths of the universe for a good answer to suffering, well then, there can't be any. Keller rightly labels such an assertion, blind faith of the highest order. Think about that. Do you remember Joseph's story? Uh, from the Old Testament, he's the guy who, who was hated by his brothers and they threw him in a pit, they sold him into slavery in Egypt and he lived through years and years of bondage. He is like the poster child for unjust suffering. But then the moment comes where he's raised up to the second highest position in all of Egypt and, and because of the position he's in, he's actually able to save God's people from the brink of starvation when a famine hits the land. God had a good reason for letting Joseph go down the road he went on, but for a long, long time, sure didn't seem that way. How many times has that been true of your life? Think about that one. How many times can we look back on earlier chapters, difficult seasons, that we had to endure, that weren't right, and yet, on the other end of it, we see something good came out of it. You never saw it when you're in the middle of it, but with a little bit of distance and a little bit of perspective, many times you do see, yeah, this bad situation that forged something good in me that wouldn't have gotten there any other way. So wrestling through suffering, uh, it maintains that balance between how things seem down here to us, we don't deny that, we don't stuff that, we don't pretend it away, but we balance it with the reality. Here's who God is. Choose to believe that these pieces of the puzzle that we still cannot fully figure out, we're still in the process of working them out, figuring out where they fit, but they will fit one day. And humility is just trusting good God Almighty to do that process, to fit them in the right place, the right time, and to make it all happen. So let's just uh, finish this, this prayer and, and see how it ends. He says this to, to close this, 
this prayer, the Lord King, the Lord is King forever and ever. The nations perish from his hand. Oh Lord, you hear the desire of the afflicted. You will strengthen their heart. You will incline your ear to do justice to the fatherless and the oppressed so that man who is of the earth may strike terror no more. You know, when, when the prayer started out, the question was, God, where are you? And by the time it finishes, that question has been answered, but God has been found, but he's not where the guy who's praying this prayer expected to find him, right? He expected God to be executing justice on the bench, righting all the wrongs, but instead he finds him among the needy, pouring out strength to those who are crushed and oppressed. And so he affirms that, yeah, this day is coming when, God, you are going to just, you are going to right every wrong. That day will come. But, but right now, you're here. You're hearing the prayers of the brokenhearted. You're pouring out mercy and grace, and you're giving them what they need to keep moving forward. Understand this. God is at work in every situation. He is present and active in every situation not always, and maybe not even oftentimes, to take us out of the situation, out of our suffering. Sometimes he's at work to take us through it, to see us to the end, giving us moment by moment precisely what we need to endure, to persevere, to keep moving forward. And when it comes to suffering, this complicated subject that we don't fully understand, but there is... There is no other religion on the face of this planet that identifies with suffering the way the Christ of the Christian faith does. It says this in Hebrews 2, that for this reason, Jesus had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God and that he might make atonement for the sins of the people because he himself suffered when he was tempted. He's able to help those who are being tempted. You see, there's a reason why God didn't just send Jesus onto earth and he went directly to the cross and died, but he lived this fully human life and suffered the same things we do. And there's a significance to that. Uh, there's, a, there's, a, there's a commercial campaign maybe you've seen on TV. It's called He Gets Us. And uh, that's exactly what this is talking about. Whatever the situation is that you find yourself in, Jesus, Jesus is the Savior who has been there, who knows what it's like. And because of that, he can respond with the care and the compassion that we need. So when it seems, does it ever seem like life isn't fair? Jesus knows what that's like. Does it feel like the whole world is set up against you? Jesus has been there. Do you ever feel abandoned, taken advantage of, and put down? Jesus went through all of those things. In fact, he went through them to a degree that surpasses anything any of us ever will. And it's out of that experience, it's out of those personal experiences that he is able to insert himself into our lives, our seasons of suffering, with sympathy and strength to minister to us in exactly the way that we need. And so, no, we don't have, we don't have all the answers 
to the subject of suffering. Uh, but when we look at the cross, we know one thing for sure, that it's not. We can rule out that it's not that God doesn't love us and it's not that he doesn't care. The cross makes that crystal clear because God has taken our suffering so seriously that Jesus actually took it on the cross himself. He suffered and he died the ultimate unjust death. So as we wrestle with this question, why is there so much unjust suffering, realize that that question applies to to Jesus more than anyone else. He is the, the sinless son of God who suffered the most, and he did it for us. So let me finish and conclude, and as this psalm does point out that there is a day of reckoning coming. It's on God's calendar. We don't know when it is, and yet we await for that and and struggle as we deal with the reality of suffering. But the Christian hope is set on it not being that way forever. The way it is is not the way it ultimately will be. Jesus will return. He will step up onto the bench and ultimate justice will one day be executed. In fact, according to Peter, he says that the reason for the delay, the reason why it hasn't happened yet is because God so much wants to pour out mercy on people's lives and grace instead of, instead of judgment. So he's, he's extending the window to give more people time to repent and turn to him. But we await that day. And until that day comes, we will continue to struggle with the reality of suffering, wrestling with this jigsaw puzzle mess of life. And we're gonna try as best we can to figure out what are we gonna do with all of these hard realities, these, these pieces of the puzzle that they're not fitting yet. They don't fit, there's, there's no easy answers. But faith in Christ gives us the hope and the confidence that they will fit, and that it's worth the struggle. And the reality as I see it is, apart from that, you can reject that conclusion, but here's what you're left with. You still gotta figure out what to do with the suffering. It doesn't go away because you reject the reality of God. You can conclude that things are so bad here, there must be no God, but where do you go next? Where do you go from there? What are you left with other than a resolution that leads you to utter despair? I'm not quite sure how you go any other route. It basically leads to the conclusion that life sucks and then you die. I'm sorry to be so blunt, but I, I'm, I'm, I'm trying to see it any other way. I'm not sure how you even find a reason to care about suffering apart from God. Because life is just nothing more than a random series of unfortunate events that ends in death. You see, apart from God, there's, there's no frame. There's no pieces at all that fit together. And that may work for you. It doesn't for me. So I say no thank you. That would be a recipe that is guaranteed to drain every bit of hope out of my soul and lead me to despair. 
doesn't make sense to me. So yes, life is a jigsaw puzzle, but I do believe, I think it makes more sense to say that these hard realities are more than random purposelessness. There is a framework, and it is possible to put some of these pieces together, and the ones that don't fit, the day will come when the puzzle will be finished, and it's all going to work out. 